Well, if you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. And we're so glad you're here. And sometimes, you know, we, we want to honor God in all things, but sometimes you've got to give credit uh, to people. And uh, this morning, uh, all the, a lot of our sound system just went out, and uh, the band had to completely change everything they were going to do on the fly. Normally, uh, before May, they could have done it in the morning, but it started in May. We had uh, the traditional service here, and so they had to do all this stuff and get it ready, like in no time flat, and they did a great job, and I really appreciate the talent and commitment that goes into it. And as far as requesting Leonard Skinner, I don't know what's wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Leonard Skinner. A lot better than that Bruno Bieber guy that sings. I know it's two different people. I really don't care. One way or the other. So, uh, 2014, a guy named James Henry White wrote a book called Rise of the Nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, Understanding and Reaching the Religiously Unaffiliated. And the, the whole premise of that book was to help us understand there is a growing segment Uh, in American culture, that when they come to the question, what is your religious preference, they check none of the above. It is estimated that in about right now, today, about 25% of all Americans consider themselves none. They have no religious affiliation at all. It doesn't mean they're atheists or agnostics. In fact, a large number of them actually believe in God. Uh, They even pray. Uh, A lot of them are raised in a church. Many were raised Baptists. It's just they no longer have a connection to the church or to Christianity or to any religion for that matter. Of the remaining approximately 75%, 70% are Christians. They claim to be Christians. But as you realize and recognize some things, that, that even a large percentage of people who claim to be Christians and who call themselves Christians are distancing themselves and moving away from the traditional doctrine beliefs that we have. The idea uh, that Jesus had a bodily resurrection. Uh, the understanding of the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus, that, that God created the world. They're moving away from that. And in fact, there are, there are many people today who call themselves Christians who do not believe that Jesus is the only way to God. They think there are other avenues, other paths to get to God. And so we're living in a culture and a world that is increasingly hostile uh, to our faith. Now, outside of uh, America, that's not uncommon for people to be hostile to Christianity, but we are experiencing that now. We are living in what is categorized as a post-Christian time, that, that in America we are in a post-Christian world. And to be post-Christian means this, that the worldview that people have, and a worldview is the way you think about things and the way you process and make decisions, that the American worldview is no longer connected to our faith. It's no longer Christian, but it's becoming basically secular. That the removal of, of religion, the removal of Jesus, of God, out of the decision-making process in people's lives. And because of that, there's a tendency now to see a culture that becomes antagonistic and hostile and so, uh, towards, uh, towards Christians. So we come then for the next seven weeks to a book called First Peter. And, and our series in First Peter is entitled Being a Believer in a Non-Believing Culture, because that's what Peter talks about. Uh, seven weeks. At the end of July, there's a Friday night, July 26th. I'm going to do just an in-depth study of First Peter, starting at 6.30, going to 10. There'll be more information about that later, but you can kind of get an idea. We're going to spend time in First Peter. And so here's the thing in this series that I want you to get. I mean, just the overall basis of this whole series in First Peter. Being a believer in a non-believing culture requires a commitment to Jesus that surpasses uh, any commitment any person has who is not a follower of Christ. So being a believer in a non-believer culture means that my faith, my commitment to Christ, has to exceed any other type of commitment. The example of that comes from 1 Peter, who shortly after he wrote this book, under the persecution of Nero, the emperor of Rome, 
died for being a Christian. He would not, he would not renounce his faith, and he died. He was having to make a commitment to Christ that was greater than any other commitment. So that's where we're coming from. And so we're going to begin this series uh, in, right at the beginning, the first two verses, talking about chosen by God, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. And this is what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest possible measure to utter completeness. And so here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to ask you a question that kind of serves as the basis of this message and the ones that follow. How does a follower of Christ live in a culture that is increasingly hostile and unreceptive to Christianity? How do I, as a follower of Christ... How am I going to live in a culture that is growing in hostility and its inability to, unwillingness to receive Christ and Christianity? How do I live in that culture? When we come to 1 Peter, uh, it begins this way. Peter, Peter writes, I'm Peter, Peter, an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, there's only one Peter in the, in the New Testament writings, and this is it. And, and this Peter was, was probably the person who was closest to Jesus once Jesus started his ministry. In the ministry of Jesus, other than his mother, his family did not receive him and believe he was the Messiah. So his brothers and sisters were not close to him. Peter was probably the guy closest to Jesus. No matter what else he may have done, and he made some huge mistakes, he was close to Jesus. And he was an apostle. And, and the idea of an apostle, there was about probably 12, 15 guys who were actually apostles. The, the disciples, the original 12, minus Judas... Uh, and then there's a few others added. And Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, became a believer. Jude, uh, probably Bartholomew, Barnabas, and uh, maybe even uh, one or two others. And all of them had seen the resurrected Lord. And all of them had at some point been called by Christ to serve him. And as an apostle, this is what Peter had. He had an authority that no one else had. Because he was with Jesus. He understood what Jesus taught. I mean, if anybody could tell us something about Jesus, it's Peter. Not only did he have an authority that came from Christ, but he had an authenticity that was unique. For Peter, he lived out what it meant to be a believer in a non-believing culture. He was beaten by the Jews. Uh, They sought to put him to death. He was in prison so that he could die, and he escaped. Uh, There was a price tag on his head, in essence. And he went around living out preaching. In fact, Peter is the main guy. Before Paul comes along, Peter's the main guy. And even, even in their world, we look at the New Testament writings, we think of Paul, Paul, Paul. But in their world, it was Peter. Peter preached the first message in Acts. Peter and John went, and they're the ones who healed the man and went to the temple. They're the ones that spoke before the Jewish ruling council. I mean, in Acts chapter 10, it was Peter that God revealed, or Jesus revealed to Peter that, that he needed to go into the Gentiles. The first person to walk into a Gentile home to preach the gospel, that was Peter. He was the guy, and as such, with this authority and authenticity, he has the ability to influence us. So if anybody knows what he's talking about, it's Peter. I mean, he is, is a, he's just a certified expert in all things dealing with Jesus. He said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are aliens, are foreigners, scattered throughout Pontus and uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he's writing to people who are in the area of what we call Asia Minor. Those, those areas describe a region of what we would call Turkey today. 
And he's writing to them, and they are foreigners. Not, not that they weren't born and raised there. They could have been born and raised there, but they no longer belonged because now they were followers of Christ, and they were part of a different kingdom. And they were experiencing a pressure. In fact, as you go through First Peter, you realize they were being, the persecution hadn't really started, but they were being pressured. They were being set apart. They had struggles, and persecution's coming. In fact, Peter wrote this book probably right before 64 A.D., in 64 AD, Nero, the emperor, began the systematic persecution of Christians. And it would cost Peter his life. It would cost Paul his life. And he was writing to Christians in this area. And there were a lot of books written to Christians in this area. I mean, if you look at the, the, the book of maps in the Bible, kind of the back, and it, and it shows you kind of Turkey, is today Turkey, Asia Minor. And the book of Ephesians was written to that area. Colossians, Philemon, the lost letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, first and second uh, Timothy were written to them. First Peter, the book of Revelation were written to those churches there. I mean, this area was just a hubbub of Christian activity and a persecution against Christians. He says to them, who are strangers, foreigners in their own land, you are chosen. Those who are chosen. And, and the idea of being chosen is what really just undermines and, and, and is foundational to all of the book of First Peter. It comes from the Greek word electos. It means the elect. And sometimes it's just translated the elect. Paul writes about the elect extensively, like for instance in, in the book of Ephesians. And to be chosen speaks of a person who was pulled out as one from among a number. In other words, there's a number of people here. To be chosen would be for you to be pulled out of this number. And so what Peter is writing about is that as followers of Christ, these people who were part of this church being persecuted, they have been pulled out of the world as a whole, chosen by God. And so the idea then is of God's sovereignty in choosing people to come be his. And what's good about that is if you're being persecuted, a great encouragement is to know that you've been chosen by God. God, you know, life is tough. That's okay, God chose you. But it also is a reminder that it keeps us humble that our salvation isn't upon ourselves. It's not something we've done. In fact, God's election removes any idea of merit or of our deserving our salvation. If you think for a moment that somehow you can earn your salvation or that somehow you deserve it, the idea that God chose us removes that possibility from your mind. So in being chosen, in verse 2 gives us then the basis and the means and the result of God choosing us. And in it, we also see a reference to the Trinity, the fullness of God. Uh, The Trinity is the understanding that there is one God, but has three uh, personalities, one nature, three characteristics. He's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is fascinating to me, and and unbelievably tragically sad, how many people uh, in Christianity do not actually believe in the Trinity. In fact, there are some very popular authors and preachers and teachers, that some of you read their stuff and listen to them, that do not believe in the Trinity. And I don't... They say, well, the word Trinity is not ever used. Well, it really doesn't matter if that word is used. It's a descriptor. I mean, the word Christians only used three times, and twice it's, it's in a negative way. And that's the word we use today to describe us. And so, so here's the thing. We see in, in, in the basis of our election, in the foundation of our election, is that we are chosen according to God the Father. So according to God the Father, on the foundational aspect, the word according to means foundationally to God the Father. We are chosen according to his pre-knowledge. He foreknew us. The foreknowledge of God. That word foreknowledge comes from the Greek word prognosis, basically. And it is the idea of to know something beforehand. Now, it is not that you just knew something was going to happen. 
But in, in the Greek, and in all the times that it's used in reference to God, it has to do with the sovereign activity of God in the foreknowledge. We are chosen because of the foreknowledge and the foreworking of God. It says that Paul writes about that in Ephesians. He writes that about that in Romans. In other words, the, 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 the election, the choosing of us, is based on the sovereignty of God in choosing us. So he's known foundationally always whom he would choose. And so it's designed to help us understand our salvation is not based on what we would do. It's based on what God did. So God gives full credit. So he knows beforehand us because in his sovereignty he has chosen us. The means of this being chosen is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now the word sanctification is one of those old school, old time Christian really Baptist words. I can't tell you how many times when I was younger, hearing about, you need to be sanctified, sanctified. I'm like, I don't know what sanctified means, but I need that. When I was a, a youth minister in Edinburgh, uh, and, and I was there in 84, 85, I went to seminary at Southwestern's Extension Campus in San Antonio. Now, Edinburgh is way down in the south of Texas, so I had to drive every Sunday night. Now, the pastor I served for back then, and I loved Brother John Ferguson. He was one of the great, most godly men. He cut me no slack. I mean, he... he we had church on Sunday nights back then, and I had to be in church. He didn't let me leave early to avoid traveling at midnight. He just said, suck it up, bud, go on. But, I mean, it was just tough different times. And so I would drive, you know, in, in the darkness of South Texas. You know, back then the speed limit was supposed to be 55. Somebody had an idea that was good. I don't know what it was. And so I would drive, and oftentimes I'd do one or two things. I'd either be studying, so I'd have a book in my hand, a flashlight here, driving with my knee, unbelievably talented at doing that, by the way. And the other thing I would do is listen to the radio. And there were no, there's no XM Sirius satellite radio. And there were no CDs. You know what you pick up at 10, 11 o'clock at night in South Texas? Preachers. That's all you get. Oh, my goodness. And I don't know how many times I heard, you got to be sanctified, sanctified, sanctified. I'm like, I know that, but most people don't know what it means. Here's what it means. To be set apart. To be made holy. The word holy is there. And so the Holy Spirit makes us holy. And it means to be set apart, not from something, but to something. Here's the crazy thing. Not crazy, but the cool thing. God the Father sets us apart from the numbers. Pulls us out. And then the Holy Spirit takes us and sets us apart to God. And see, when God pulls us out, we're, we're drenched in sin. We're sinners who rebelled against God. We can't come into his presence until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us. And he cleanses us. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. Because of those two things, we then come to the result of being chosen. To obey Jesus Christ and the sprinkling by his blood. The sprinkling by his blood, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those old school terms we still use. We don't talk about the blood much, but it, it's a reference back to the sacrificial systems. Everybody back then, Jews, pagans, they all sacrificed. There was blood everywhere. And, and to be cleansed or sprinkled or covered in the blood means, in essence, to be saved. If you were to keep reading in chapter 1, verse 18 says, We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The shedding of blood saves us. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of describing that we are saved. And that happens because of our obedience to Jesus Christ. And this is where we need to understand. Because to be obey Jesus is all throughout. The concept just, is just, it just dominates First Peter. We're chosen to obey. I mean, that's the idea. So to us, obeying is like 
there's a set of things that have to be accomplished, and we've got to do that. We've got to make those choices. And so it's like, you know, moms tell their kids, you can't go outside, or I guess in this day and age, you can't get on the Internet until you've done your homework, cleaned your room, ate dinner, and took a bath or whatever. And so you, to obey your mother in order to accomplish something. But actually the idea of obedience comes with the concept of you so have given your life to someone that it is the course of your life that you live. It describes who you are. Peter, in, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes up to some fishermen. Peter's one of them. And he calls them. He chooses them and he says, come follow me. And it says they left everything and they went and followed Jesus. They were obedient. In other words, they gave their life. And so when you become a follower of Christ, you give yourself to him. Your life is lived in obedience. It's not a system of things you've got to check off. It is a lifestyle. And it begins with our faith in Christ. So here's what it means to be chosen. It means God has chosen you and called you out. The Holy Spirit has set you apart, made you holy. You believe and you're saved by Jesus. I grew up being taught that it was the other way around on all that. I grew up in, 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 a, I grew up in a great, you know, in many ways, a great Baptist church. We had faults there. There were things, there were, there were problems there. And it's probably great in my mind, it, when I look at it objectively as a pastor, we had a lot of really weird stuff in the church I grew up in, weird people, weird ideas, weird things. But eventually I would go back there to serve on staff because, you know, God called me. That's my home church. I mean, so I spent six years as the associate pastor, great church. Listen, that's my home church. If they called me tomorrow and said, come, we need you to pastor, I would, I would be gone. I'm just kidding, not really. But I, but I remember being taught, you believe, you're saved, then you be set apart, and then God said, well, I knew you would do that. Because this is what I was taught. I was taught that God chooses people who choose Jesus. That's what I was taught. That's, taught, that's what election is. What you, that's what being chosen means. God chooses those who chose Jesus. And I was taught wrong. Huh. Imagine that. Because that's not what it says. Peter didn't say that. Paul didn't say that. Jesus never said that. See, if that's what you, if that's what you believe, that's what you teach, then what you're saying is, God has put out there this list of criteria. The ultimate one is, I just have to follow Christ. I'm about to believe in Jesus, have faith. And once I have faith, then God will save me. So it's up to me. It becomes work. It becomes meritorious. And I've had people, you know, argue, no, no, I mean, God, God knows everything and he chooses those who choose Christ. Listen, you make it sound like I have this choice. I have Christianity, there's Judaism, I can be a pagan, I can be a nun. Today, I'm going, I mean, I'm going to be a Christian. So God, I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm going to follow Christ. Now you got to come save me. It doesn't work that way. It's never taught that way. I was taught wrong. They taught me wrong. Listen, if what you believe comes up against what Peter writes or Paul writes or Jesus says, and they disagree with what you believe, you know what you have to do? You have to change what you believe. Peter is an expert on all things Jesus. He was with him. He says, God chooses you before you believe. That's the way it is. And then he says this. Grace and peace be to you in the fullest. Because here was salvation is all about grace. Grace is not what we deserve. It's what God gives us when we're undeserving. And he gives us undeserving salvation. He chooses me. Holy Spirit sets me apart. And then he gives me the opportunity to believe. It's an amazing thing. He says, David, believe now. I've chosen you. The Spirit has set you apart. Believe and be saved. And when that happens, we have peace, grace and peace 
with God to the fullest possible extent. Now, that's pretty important stuff to know. Because here's what's going to happen. Shortly after Peter writes this, Nero begins the persecution. Nero's the emperor of Rome. He begins the systematic persecution of Christians. It becomes the official policy of Rome to persecute Christians for the next 260 years. Some emperors did it more than others. Some areas were tougher than others. But for 260 years, they persecuted Christians until in about 313, the emperor Constantine, whose mother was a believer, who was kind of raised and, and kind of had the tendency to be a follower of Christ and eventually became a follower of Christ, so there's some debate over all that. He looked around at his empire, this massive empire. You know what he saw it full of? Christians. They persecuted them and they kept growing. They went after them and they kept multiplying. And so he said, no more. Christianity is now officially a religion of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? Because the Christians fought a bunch of wars? Nope. Did it happen because, you know, they protested outside the capital of Rome? Oh, no way. You know what happened? Because they obeyed Christ. Because they were called out, set apart, and they believed and obeyed the one who saved them. What's so cool about 1 Peter is what it tells me this. In a world that's increasingly hostile to me, that God chose me, he set me apart, he saved me, He's more than capable of helping me live in a world that's opposed to him. You know that? I mean, I know the world's increasingly hostile. Some of you work in places where there's hostility towards faith. You can't even talk about your faith. And the students go to school in places. If you go off to college, basically that's a hostile place for Christianity. I mean, you may, you may be in a family where you're the only believer in the family, and it's kind of hostile. You look around the world and you say, man, the things the world is deciding is hostile. I got news for you. The God who chose you, sets you apart and saves you, he can handle all of that. How do we know? Well, for 260 years they killed Christians until there were more Christians than there were pagans, and they gave in. That's one way we know. Another reason is because Peter, who knew Jesus better than anybody, tells us. No, when, when you live in a, in a culture that's becoming more hostile, there's really two questions that end up coming to my mind. And first, Peter helps me answer them. The first is this. How can I honor God in a culture that tells me to dishonor God? You think about that? My culture today, I, I, you know, my culture's changed as I've grown up. The world around me has changed. I'm being told more and more, you've got to give up parts of your faith and dishonor God. What, what are you talking about? And we say, well, the culture's not asking us to do that. Sure they are. Every week. Some government agency somewhere, or some entity passes a rule, makes a law that tells Christians you can't practice or do the things or say the things you've always held. For the last few years, there's a guy in Colorado that's a baker. He'll sell cakes to anybody. He didn't care who you are. He didn't care your religious affiliation. He didn't care your sexual orientation. He'll sell you a cake. What he won't do is make a cake using his talents and ability that dishonors God. In the state of Colorado, persecuted. They flat persecuted him for that. Telling him to dishonor God. That's the world we're living in. I'll tell you something else I have to ask myself. How do I relate to other people, especially those who reject Jesus? I I meet more and more people, and I have to relate to them, and they reject Jesus. Well, what do we do? I'll tell you, 
the tendency for some people, and, th- and this is wrong, but for all too often, the tendency of people has kind of been, you know, if you want to reject Jesus, if you're hostile to Jesus, well, fine. You just go to hell. I don't care. That's kind of it. Sometimes, I got to be honest, sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes when I see people and, and the way they are, you know, trying to help them come to Christ and they're just hostile and reject, I'm like, well, go to hell then. I don't care. I also feel that about people who cut me off when I'm driving, too. That's the dangerous thing. <laughs> you do that one more time, I'll send you on your way there. I guarantee you that right now. Boom. But here's the thing. Is that our attitude? No. Why? Because we are to obey Jesus Christ. What does it mean to obey Jesus Christ? There are two things Jesus told us to do. Two things. In Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, right before he was going to go off to be killed, he said, they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love your neighbor, love other people as yourself. He said, by the way, that sums up all of the Old Testament. He didn't use the word Old Testament, but that's what it means. If you look at all the books before Matthew, Jesus said they're summed up this way. Love God, love other people. Love God, love other people. We know, we know how much Christ loved other, other people because when he was on the cross dying, the first words out of his mouth was, were, God, forgive them. Lord, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive the people killing me. The other command he gave us after his resurrection, before his ascension, he said this. Oh, by the way, go make disciples of everybody. Of all of them. And, and you do it by going, and you'll baptize them as evidence of their salvation. And then here's the thing. You'll teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. What has Jesus commanded us to do? Two things. Love God, love other people, and make more disciples. So what do we do? We go and make love people. We love God, love other people. We make disciples. Then we teach them what Jesus said to do, which was love God, love other people, and make disciples. That's what it is. That's Christianity in a nutshell. And if you're going to be in a hostile world, in a world that's going to be in opposition to all things Christian. That's what you do. Peter tells us, obey Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, love and make disciples. So I'm going to go back to my original question. How can I, as a follower of Jesus, live in a culture, a world, a community, that increasingly is hostile and unreceptive to Christianity? Here's the answer. Because I am chosen by God, set apart by the Holy Spirit, and saved by Jesus, I am compelled to love even those who, people who are hostile to me. This is obedience. This always wins. How do I know it wins? Because after Peter wrote this letter about how to be a believer in an unbelieving world, for 260 years, the unbelieving world tried to wipe out, destroy, and kill Christianity. But they were chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, saved by the Son. And they lived a life in obedience to Jesus so that they loved God, loved people, And they took Jesus Christ to the people who wanted to put them to death. That's it. That's the way it goes. And I know some of you are living your life in in an environment that seems hostile towards your faith. And you're striving to see what can we do. It may be in a few moments when we have our invitation, you want to come and pray with one of us. And just say, look... David, and I think one of the ladies, if you're a, a gal, a woman, and you want to pray with a lady, one of the ladies will be up here, and you can say, 
I'm in a hostile place, and it's tough. I need help, and we'll, we'll pray with you. But ultimately, what you have to end up doing is committing yourself to say, God, I'm going to love the people who are hostile to me, because that's how I obey Jesus. And you need to take comfort that you're chosen by God. You need to take encouragement and praise God that you're chosen by him. But at the end of the day, being chosen by God moves you, moves you to love and share Jesus with those people. You need to make that commitment. Some of you, some of you are not even followers of Christ. Whether you know it or not, you're the ones hostile to God. And maybe you want to come and give your life to Jesus. So we, we encourage you to do that. And we'll be here at the front and come talk to one of us after the service. We'll be at a table outside around the corner. You can go there or, or just put in the connect card. You want to talk to one of us. But you need to give your life to Jesus. So for some of you, it's just the burden of the hostility weighs on your heart. And you just need to come to the Father and say, I want to be encouraged by the fact that I'm chosen. And I want to obey Jesus. I just need you to help me, Lord. I just need you to help me. I don't know what it is that God calls you to do. And I really can't tell you all you know, the solutions to all life's problems. It's not my responsibility. But I know, know this. This guy named Peter, who was as close to Jesus as everybody, to people who were facing an unbelieving culture, said, hey, listen to me. You've been chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, saved by Jesus. So here's what you do. You obey Jesus Christ. You trust him with your life, and you live a life that ends up being a life about love and bringing people to Jesus. And Father, that's what it is. How can I be a believer in a non-believing culture. I act like a believer. I know I'm chosen. I live as a chosen member of the family, the community of grace. And then I go to people who are hostile and I love them. I forgive them. And I tell them about Jesus. That's what we do. It's hard, God, but that's what we need to be. They did it for 260 years, so Father, help us to do it now in our community, in, in our families, in our workplace, in our schools. Help us to be the ones chosen by God to live that life for your glory and your honor and that people may come find Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? I'll be here at the front with others to greet you.